Do me a favor, just, uh, I mean, take a look and see that the tape is turning, everything is working right. Um, today's a very exciting and important this year. You see, what happened with Rabbi Yitzchol Hanan, and I have to tell you, you know, sometimes in life, uh, you wish you could go over the time boundary. If there's one Godlby Israel, I, I, I personally would like to meet and speak with and observe him. It's Rabbi Yitzchokhan Inspector. Uh, because here, I mean, it's almost a, it's a legendary figure. Here's a man who uh, comes from a Hasidic background. That's what they say. He say he wore a gatel as well. And uh, he did it all on his own. He didn't attend Velazhin. His time ready there was the Velazhin of Yeshiva. Didn't attend Velazhin. It's also said that he didn't have the greatest mind of his generation. But the achievement came about through tremendous hatmada. And he went on to become, you understand, to become the Rav of Novartic and afterwards to become the Rav of Kovna and to publish at a generation that he lived in was still a generation of Gedoli, Gedoli Yisrael and to become the Posek Achron of the generation. And more than that, uh, you know, the greatest proof is what I mentioned last week, when you look at the history of Yeshiva University, when the two schools merged, and, uh, you know, you look back now, of course, they want to abolish MTA. I mean, everything that was so sacred and holy is suddenly, as time marches on, becomes uh, past history. But, all right, maybe that's part of life. I, uh, I, I don't know, uh, you know, I, I don't even take a stand because I'm here and they're there, and I don't, I don't really know what's going on in the United States. But I understand that MT has a reprieve, at least for next year. From Maybe you know more than I do, but from what I heard is that they decided not to abolish it for next year, but they're negotiating uh, with some other schools to take it over, just as they did with Central. But when you go back to the merger of the two yeshiva, Eitz Chaim and Yeshiva Spitzchol Hanan, it's amazing how the name Eitz Chaim is totally forgotten. And there's no YU person in the world today who referred to Yeshiva University as Eitz Chaim. But all of us know it, that Yeshiva Spitzchol Even the way Yeshiva Spitzchol began is fascinating. What happened was very simple. When uh, R.J.J. came to America, he brought a baton with him. Now, the Rabbi Jacob Joseph story in America, it's not for now. Some of you know that I've uh, published on it and Cobb uh, published and I published it. It was in the Ridbaz, but I touch upon it in, many of my public, in, in a number of publications. The RJJ story is, is literally worthy of a full-length video, a full-length movie. If someday will be Zeicha, it's one of the most dramatic moments in American Torah history. I mean, here they uh, had this tremendous dream to bring a, a, a chief rabbi to America to organize orthodoxy, to have proper kashret, and they bring over the preeminent rabbi of Vilna. He was not chief rabbi, as I've mentioned more than once, there was no chief rabbi in Vilna. But he was the Magid Meshar Vilna. You understand? This was a preeminent position. This position was later held by the Rav's uncle, Rabbi Nachman Krakowski, the uh, Avodat HaMelech. And here they bring RJJ to America. And of course, it's tremendous tragedy, uh, his own life, what happens to him in America. But what's fascinating is, he brought with him big Talmud HaChamim to be on his baton. Because a chief rabbi can't function without a baton without proper Talmud Chachamim to take care of the Beitin, to take care of Kashrit. So among the people he brought, first of all, was Rabbi Yisrael Kaplan. Can you tell me who Rabbi Yisrael Kaplan was? He's the father of Mordechai Kaplan. 
So that Mordechai Kantlin, who was born in Lita and comes to America as a little kid only because his father is a member of the Beitin of RJJ, this is Mordechai Kantlin, who later goes on to become the first uh, assistant English-speaking rabbi to Ramaz in Kilat Jeshurun, later goes on to become the rabbi of the Jewish center, and this is Mordechai Kaplan, who leaves the Jewish center to found the Reconstructionist movement. The other member of the uh, Beitin was Rabbi Matlin, and uh, this Rabbi Matlin, what happened was he had a son of Kiva, and he graduated Eitz Chaim. And when he graduated Eitz Chaim, his father felt very bad. Imagine the kids growing up in America in the 1890s, a hundred years ago. Father is a Talmud Chacham, first rate. And the kid has no place to study Gemara. The kid is going to high school. If I know, went to Seward Park High School. It can be checked out. And uh, the kid is going to high school like every other kid. So the father wants him to study Gemara every day. But the father is very smart. If you forced your kid to study Gemara, he's not going to want to. So the father told him, bring a few friends. Other people on the east side found out there's a Gemara class in the Mariupol Synagogue. After high school ends, the kids learn for an hour, an hour and a half, two hours. So the Matlin boys started coming and his friends started coming. And before you know it, they had 10, 12, 20, 30 kids. And then they decided to incorporate the school and give it a formal name. And since Rabbi Shochanan had died in 1896, there was no better name they could give it than Rabbi Shochanan. So that's a little bit of the history of how the yeshiva comes to be called Yeshiva Saben Yitzchak Hanan and how the yeshiva begins. Now this Akiva Matlin remained from, if I'm not mistaken, you understand in that period, uh, Chaim Salavechik is absolutely right, he was attacked afterwards, people attacked him, that there were Jews who remained from in America. Yes, it's absolutely true. There were families that came to America at the turn of the century, the 1890s, and there were families that remained from. It's absolutely so. But these were the absolute exceptions to the rule that proved the rule. And what Chaim Salavechik was saying in Eruption Reconstruction is that there was almost a total break in the United States with the living tradition, with the mimetic tradition. And Chaim's absolutely right. You say, I don't like the people, if you read the literature afterwards, I think in Torah Mada, so people said, but my family remained. It's true. There's a Larry Waxman. If you know Larry Waxman, in the picture of the dedication of the new building of the yeshiva in uh, on East Broadway, there's Larry Waxman's grandfather, or great-grandfather, I think it's his grandfather, and Einochinami. His family is in America for a hundred plus years, and they remain from. But that's the exception that proves the rule. And uh, Akiva Matlin, if I'm not mistaken, he was in medical school, he dropped out, and he went into the Hashkacha. He became a, he became a mashkiach a professional mashkiach for his father's hashkacha or other hashkacha, and that's the way he made a living. If I'm not mistaken, he was interviewed yet by Gil Klapperman, if, you if you're familiar with Rabbi Klapperman's book, which is based upon his doctorate, The Early History of the Yeshiva, 1885 to 1915. So if I'm not mistaken, he was one of the people that was interviewed, Akiva Matlin, the son of Rabbi Matlin, who was Mamish, the founder of Yeshiva Sochanan. Now, what made... What made these trivets so important, and you'll see it again today, you see, sometimes a person writes a triva. So you write a triva. The triva is what you call chad pami. It doesn't, you know, it's an individual triva written in response to a certain case, but it's not a triva that affects thousands or tens of thousands of cases that are going to happen afterwards. 
for the sake of argument, if you're familiar with Rabbi Moshe Feinstein, uh, particularly the, the volume that deals with Ebenezer after the first five volumes. So he has another volume, I believe it's the seventh volume, if I'm not mistaken, where he deals with a slew of problems of Mamzerat. And it's just amazing to see the way Rabbi Moshe in every individual case finds a heta. That's what I told my daughter last week, if you recall, I told you she told me a certain shiva that a woman prepared, I spoke about it on Monday, and I told her that one part of that, that sveik sveiker alone would have been enough for Rav Moshe to be matir. But in Israel, you have to go to the base din, and, and as I explained last week, the dayanam on the lower level are not, don't have that self-confidence. They're not big enough flandanam yet. They're not yet gedoli gedoli Israel. So what happens is it gets pushed around. Ultimately, it reaches the higher echelon, and they already know what Lundus is, and they already understand what's happening. But Reb Meishem had so many questions, and he was matir, one after another, found a way to be matir each case. But I cannot say that those cases became precedent-making. What's amazing about the Yisrael Hanan is that isolated cases of, of Agunat ultimately affect tens, thousands, and as we'll see today and next week, they affect tens of thousands. Now, last week we, uh, we dealt with the case of a man floating down the river, being hit by trees, and uh, there was, a, as you saw, the majority of people who were hit by trees die, the majority of people that, that drown in a river die, and in addition, there's the Avad Zichro of 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 Rebbe Lezer Meivadun, Rebbe Lezer Verona, that is a sheet of the Chuyah, but nevertheless, it can be added as a sniff. And it's, it's, it's an amazing point of view. Rebbe Zchanan also goes into the whole problem of Sveik Sveik Bavatachat. That, and this is something the Shev Shemaita deals with, to say it very simply, if you have a Sheila, if you have a Suffolk, and you answer it, then there's no longer a Suffolk. So if you have one suffake and you paskin what you paskin, then then a second suffake comes along, that second suffake already is not affected by the first. So what Rabbi Zechonin says, that in all these cases, the sveik sveik has to happen instantaneously, has to happen concomitantly. And when the woman finds out her husband is m- missing and the way he died, so right away you have the suffake of the trees hitting him over the head, the suffake of the drowning. As we move into modern times, we have a third suffolk. And that suffolk is, had, had the husband, had the husband uh, been alive, he would have contacted his wife. Now, you ask yourself, when did that suffolk happen? That suffolk happens nowadays the minute she knows. Why? It happens with all the other Sveikad. It doesn't happen later. Because now there's instant communication. Once there's instant communication, then the woman immediately knows her husband is missing. He should have contacted her. So this too, whenever we get involved with Sveikad here, you're going to have the Avad Zikro. It becomes a very, very important Sveikad. Now, the second shiv we dealt with last week was very fascinating because it's talking about a boat going to America. And there too, it's like I told you, with all the boats that got through, every once in a while, a boat would sink in the ocean, a boat would catch fire, and you, you would have hundreds of people who were unaccounted for, bodies that were never recovered, among them Jews, and they turned to B'shochan and they said, we heard that you have a way to be matir, and you're dealing here with tens, tens of agunat. And here too, we said, if the majority of people on the boat fell into the water, Number one, when you drown in the ocean, you don't survive. 
the majority of people on a boat that catches fire who don't survive, we can assume that they were burned, they were destroyed by the flames. And here too, there is the third factor of Avad Zichro. What's fascinating about this tshuva is he breaks in the middle to tell the story of Jews traveling from London to Cape Town. Obviously business people. And how they too, a boat sinks. And he says, there too he was matir. And he goes in also to the Trey And there he has to depend upon, as the suffering suffolk, he has to depend upon the Avad Zichro. And Avad Zichro, what is the relationship with the husband and wife? See, that is... That is something you have to be certain. Today, we can no longer take for granted that a husband and wife live b'shalom v'shalva, even in the Torah community, even the Orthodox community. We already have instances in our community, husbands killed wives, right or wrong. Don't want to mention cases. Munsi, there was a case. Far Rockaway, there was a case. Husbands killed wives. Pshuto kamashmo. I know other cases where husbands were suspected of killing wives, one of them, even a rabbi, still, uh, what's the difference? At the funeral, the father of the Nebuch, the woman who was dead, and the Rav was at the funeral. I was living in Israel, but, you know, it's a small world. We heard the story that in front of the Rav, the father-in-law lunged at the son-in-law, a prominent rabbi, and accused him of drowning his wife. And There was a coroner's inquest. No one knows what the true story is. It's it, the, the hatred between husband and wife today. Man. You understand, we're living in a world where, where there's all types of, we take all types of license, you understand. If Clinton can do what he does, then another million men walking uh, the face of the earth are going to do just like Clinton. Because if Clinton can do it and get away with it, why can't I and why can't you? And from people, you understand, and, and it, it goes across the line. Where there's so much violence in the world, you understand, it's frightening. So people, you don't like someone, you kill someone, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible world today. Not only that, Jews, I'll tell you something else too. We have gone into prof- professions we never dreamt we'd go into. There's so many doctors today. And Jews involved in professions of life and death. To me, once a person, you have to remember, every doctor, triage is built into every medical system. Unfortunately, we don't have enough resources to be the ideal medical system. So you can talk with doctors. I've spoken with my students. Doctors make life and death decisions, if not daily, weekly. And the minute people are involved with life and death, their whole attitude becomes different. And it's very frightening to me. But God have mercy on us. Rabbi Zalchanan spent so much time in that shiva to establish that the husbands and wives love each other, that there was no hot feeling. Because what he's saying is very simple. Imagine today, a man is missing. A man is missing, the wife is crying, you mother her to remarry, and the truth of the story is, it was all a fake eye. He hates her guts, he doesn't want to give her money. This way he can disappear, let her get a life insurance settlement, that'll keep her going. He keeps the money, he has the bank accounts, he surfaces in B'nai Brak, she's living in Borough Park, Shalom al Yisrael, and and who, you know these are these are unbelievable, unbelievable times in that respect. So that you have to be certain with the avad zikro that the man is not out to do it on purpose. I can list many cases of my students that I know what's going on in their married life. Believe me, 
if the wife would call me and say, Rebbe, my husband was in a car crash, I haven't heard from him, he disappeared, the car fell into the water, in the meantime, she's under her breath, you understand, she's cursing him out, believe me, I wouldn't be Samach on the Abad Zichrow, you understand what I'm saying, and this is, Rebbe Zohan already in his time has to struggle with it, okay, so this, this is where we stood last week, and I also showed you the Khatam Sofa. The Khatam Sofa appears twice. A very important Khatam Sofa where he deals with the Beidah, where he deals with the post office. Of course, you grew up in a world where you take it for granted. But can you imagine in modern times, beginning already in the 1800s, you go to a mailbox, drop a letter in, and that letter will be delivered a week, two weeks later, three weeks later, all over the world. This is an unbelievable achievement. And the Khatam Sofa already says in his time you have the post office. So B'tzalchan already talks about telegrams. You don't realize what telegrams were, but I still remember telegrams. Telegrams were unbelievable. You used to get a telegram. Uh, it was instant communication, you understand. Nowadays, of course, the telephone, who would ever believe that it's cheaper to call America from Israel than to call Tel Aviv? It's, 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 it's an unbelievable. And not only that, the connection, you know, I'm so overwhelmed. I get calls from America. I call America. It's like the person is next door. I still remember where an overseas call, you had to shout and yell and talk loud. And I can't hear you so well and repeat it. What a world we're living in. And you talk in terms of email. I talk in terms of the facts. So that today that second rove comes along instantaneously. The minute they tell her, your husband was in a car crash, or your husband was in a plane crash, or your husband was in a train crash, or your husband didn't return from battle, the minute you tell her, instantaneously, you have a sveik sveika. The majority of the people in such an incident are killed, and the majority of survivors would have contacted their wives. Now, um, another example where this becomes already a full-scale is the Chivu Rabbi Yitzchol Road in 1891. This appears in his last volume. His last volume, the Ein Yitzchak, appeared one year before he died. He died in 1896. The Ein Yitzchak Chelek Bet was published 1895. And the Chivu is Chivu 1 in Evanesa, the first Chivu, 1891 written. And it's fascinating. He says, I was asked from America. See, this is also amazing how you have chivot after chivot being asked from America. It would make a very fascinating doctorate. Again, I throw out topics. I wonder if anyone will ever take the challenge. But to analyze the questions that were asked of Gedoli Yisrael from America in the last half of the 19th century, you'll find in its sieve. You know what I'm talking about? Anyone can tell me that it's sieve, you'd sign the famous chiva, the meshiv dava, that, that, that is, I mean, it's so American, it's overwhelming. Anyone know what I'm talking about? In America, in Cincinnati, Ohio, there was a great rabbi, Rabbi Lesser, Rabbi Gershon Lesser, who was the Orthodox shul in Cincinnati. So a balabas gave money and dedicated the Holy Ark in the new synagogue. But this is America. And he made a simple tonight that since he's giving all this money and dedicating the Holy Ark, he wants a little covered. Rabbi Revel used to say, C-O-D, covered on delivery. And what's the cover he wants? He wants on Sunday, they should have a dinner in his honor when all the people are off, not Shabbos, but Sunday, 
and they should read from the Torah, the Nusufre Torah, the Holy Ark. He spent tens of thousands of dollars. He was a very wealthy man. We're talking the 1870s, 1880s in the United States. The man gave what today would be a half a million dollars to the synagogue. But he wants a little covered. And what's wrong? He wants them to read from the Torah that all the men and women and children and, and, and everyone should be there from the Kehillah before they have the reception and read from the Torah. And this is the tonight he makes with giving his money. No, what's the halachic problem? Brachot levatala. On a, on, a, on a Sunday that's not a Rosh Chaydish, uh, suddenly you're going to have a party 12 o'clock noon and you're going to take out the Sifrei Torah, and you're going to be Mahabid, miss the big, to make the Birchat Torah and read from the Torah. To read from the Torah, you can only read from the Torah when there's a Kiev, when, when, when there's a Kiev. You can't just read from the Torah. And this was the Shiloh of the Nitziv. And what's amazing is how the Nitziv is so naive about America, he can't believe a man would make such a tonight. He says, explain to him, you're not allowed, that it's a Kriya, Shane, that's, that, that's not, not from a Tikkun Chazal, therefore you can't make a Bracha. How can you do a Mitzvah and demand to do an Avera along with the Mitzvah? Talk with him, explain to him, and then it goes into it. And by the way, that Shiva became very famous. Can anyone tell me why? Gentlemen, your knowledge shows a little lack. Can anyone tell me why? World War II, the tremendous question came up. You could get the soldiers together at night. Basically, in World War II, they did not fight at night. It's unlike today. Today, we fight at night. Today, it's a different ballpark because of developments with nightlight, with optics, with Mahon Lev. Today, the Merkava, the Mahon Lev was involved in, in these developments. My son-in-law, and so I don't want to say anything further, I'm revealing military secrets. But my son-in-law twice won the highest award of the Israeli army at a time of peace, and it's from knowledge that he developed and that he learned in Mahon Lev and applied it to tanks. But today, the Merkava 3 can fight in the middle of the night as if it's broad daylight. You understand? I saw, my son-in-law showed me certain things. I couldn't believe what he was showing me. Broad daylight. World War II, they didn't fight at night. You understand? Wherever the troops advanced, that's where they remained to daybreak. You could not fight at night. Well, if you couldn't fight at night, that was the only time you could get soldiers together. Are you allowed to read the Torah on Friday night? You understand? Shabbos morning, they're going to be fighting. There's no way you can get them together. No way you can make a minion. No way you can make a press service. What about Friday night? Getting them together, having seven... Olim la Torah, this was a serious question asked in World War II. And in dealing with it, they had to use sources, including the Nitziv, the Meshav Dava that I just referred to. Uh, by the way, the answer is you can't read it at night. The told Takon of Chazal is Shabbos morning. But what you could do at night, you could read from the Torah without brachat. That already, it's not any worse than a woman's prayer group where if you feel this is the only time you get them together and reading from the Torah is so important, so read from the Torah without brachat. Now, there were many questions asked from America. And it was interesting whom they asked, who the famous Polskim were, and the Chivet reveal a world. Now, this question, of course, is not so much an American question as an international question, a universal question for Torah Jews. And it's, he's asked, he said, I was asked from America, there are a number of women that have remained on Gunit for many years. Vishomeret hadin Torah. And these are from women, you understand? In America at that time already, women are good at what's the big deal? Go and get married by justice of the peace. No, these are from women. 
And these are women who ask Hamutava Asa that really ask questions. Why? And their husbands were on the ship in the middle of the sea, not far out of Hamburg. And what do we mean by Hamburg? Those of you who know uh, geography, Hamburg was one of the big ports where Jews departed from Hamburg from America. I mean, until today, Hamburg is a big port. And here a boat left Hamburg, and there were a tremendous amount of people on the boat, hundreds and hundreds of people. It says most of them were not Jewish, but they were among, you know, these big boats. I just was in Miami Beach. I saw these big cruise liners. They looked to me like the Queen Elizabeth. I never saw anything so big. They must hold thousands of people. They tell me the Hassan cruise, 900 people went out in this Hassan cruise and that was only part of the boat, you understand? I don't know if it's a third of the boat or what. So here there must have been a few thousand, a thousand, five hundred people out of so many people, many of whom were non-Jews, there were a few hundred Jews on the boat. And he says that they saved from when the boat sank, they saved about 30 or 40 people from the entire crew. And they, the women, seven years have been Aguna. This happened in 1883. And he says, I've gotten all the information, all the papers, all the documents have been saved to me. And he, and he writes that when the boat went out and left Hamburg, they were one day away from Hamburg. And he writes that they had gone to sleep and the ship crashed towards morning when it was still night. And he says they were absolutely asleep in their beds. You see, this is another factor too. You have to understand, this makes the question a little bit easier. Why? When a person is awake, and there's sources in the Rishonim on this, he brings down the Mabit. When a person is awake, maybe you have a fighting chance, you can jump in, you can jump on a raft, you can jump on a lifeguard, maybe somehow a miracle will happen, and, and you'll, you'll save yourself, a whale will swallow you up, whatever we spoke about in the Gemara, you know, wave to wave, the Gemara in Yavamat. But when you're asleep on your bed, you know what's happening to you when you're asleep? I haven't remembered, I have to be honest with you, I don't remember the last time I was awake when a plane took off. My minig is always, and unfortunately, I don't have time, so when I'm traveling, I have to take that midnight flight. The midnight flight has a tremendous advantage that you gain, a, you don't lose a day of travel. You leave here at 1 o'clock, you arrive in New York at 6 o'clock. How do you sleep on the plane? So that's a problem. So I take... Uh, travelers that travel a lot all have the same system. You take a sleeping pill, get onto the plane and you bounce a sleeping pill. I'm asleep. I don't know what's going on. I wake up two hours later. You know, I don't even... I, I, the last thing I remember, the plane was on the ground going towards the runway. You wake up a few hours later, you're high in the sky, you forgot everything. Of course, a person's asleep. What does he know? He's drowning. The boat is crashing. By the time the guy knows what's happening, he's drowned already, understand? So, th- this is another factor. In addition... A very fascinating shiva. That's a very interesting fact that the person is, is, is drowning. He's asleep. He doesn't know what's happened. By the time the water has, has, has forced him to stop breathing, the guy went from a deep sleep to an endless sleep. 
You understand? It's, it's like the king of Jordan when his end finally came today at 11.43 in the morning. It's amazing. I was teaching in Midrashat Moria and the girls were asking me about the king. They heard rumors. He's sick. He's that. You know, they're, they're, they're cut off from the newsstand. I don't think it's not like here where you get a Jerusalem Post in the morning and everyone can, can see what's going on in the world. They're totally cut off. So I think at the moment he died, I was telling them that he's still attached to the support system, but he's clinically dead. And I was talking about the Lubavitcher Rebbe. I was making an analogy because when the Rebbe was uh, so ill, it happened I, had, I was in America and one of the head doctors at Beth Israel, I had to meet him in the hospital, a good friend of mine. And he took me upstairs where the Rebbe was. It was very fascinating because the police was caught in Dorf and he showed me that the Rebbe's dead, that uh, he's just clinically kept alive. And he told me one of the reasons they clinically kept him alive is simply to give the Hasidim a time for it to sink in that the Rebbe is dead. You understand? Because the police in New York, this I know from within, were very afraid of suicides. It reaches a stage of a cult, and the leader is gone, and there, God forbid, might be suicides. But if people can let it sink in, you minimize the chance of suicide. In other words, when you know someone is clinically dead and he's ill and there's no hope and day after day after day, so it sinks in. The same thing with deal with the king. I thought for sure they keep him attached to these machines another few days, let it sink in, but evidently he sunk so rapidly or he was dead from before, who knows. But 11.43, the king died. He doesn't know when you're in a coma, it's, a, it's probably the best way to die. You don't know, you don't feel... And imagine you're asleep on your bed, it's 4 o'clock in the morning, even if you had a little trouble falling asleep, by 4 o'clock you're in a deep sleep, the water overtakes you, you don't know anything, you're not going to get up, you're not going to fight, you're not going to jump, you can't go for a lifeboat, a very important point. And then he says something else, because they were so close to Hamburg one day out, and we're talking, you see, it's 18, 1883, the Hamburg, the Hamburg police sent out boats with deep sea divers. Very fascinating that already at that time they had deep sea divers. Bari Amorai, I don't even know what the words mean. People that can go deep. That know how to go down deep into the water. And it says they went down to the water, just like the Titanic, the description here. Anyone that they didn't save, they saw hundreds of bodies at the bottom of the ocean, dead. That is what they testify. And of course, here we already have absolute tray rube. Number one, we see for sure a ship that crashes at sea where people are asleep. Absolutely, the majority died. We can assume he died. There's a Chazaka he died. There's a Rof he died. All you have here is the Gezerah, the Rabbanan of Maim She'enla himself. And as far as we're involved here, there is one Rov. And this rove is a very, very powerful rove because the deep sea divers came along, they went down, they looked, they searched, they hunted, and they said they saw with their own eyes that anyone they didn't save, Ruben Metu, Not only that, they remained in the cabin. They were asleep. This adds to the rove that they're dead. And here he quotes the Mabit, 
that once you're in a cabin, once you're asleep, once you're in a ship and you, you don't know what's going on, they use the word to shine him inside the cabin. That once they're inside the cabin and they don't know what's going on and Allah had come of a comma where they're asleep, then you certainly can assume that the majority are dead. And then of course, where do we get our second drove? How do we solve the problem of the Maim Shainla himself? And this, of course, is had they remained alive, they would have contacted their wives. And, and he says, If a miracle happened, and somehow he reached the shore, he got back to Hamburg, through a letter. Oh, are you day? We spoke about this last week. Newspapers. You place an ad in the newspaper. You inform your wife in the newspaper. See, this is something I still remember after World War II. There were so many ads, people hunting for people. I can tell you that even when I came in Aliyah in 1969, there were still these type of ads. Olim Chadashim were coming in from behind the Iron Curtain. Then there was a trickle and they would publish ads in the newspapers. I am from this family. I had a father, a mother by this name. I had a brother, a sister. I don't know who survived the Holocaust. Does, do I have any relatives here? If I have any relatives, please contact them. The Jewish agency had a special division. They still might have it. That sat on Rehov. King George, I can even show you the building with a two, with a Tevatoa number, a POB number, contact that number. Let me know if I have relatives. So, you see, he would have sent an ad into the paper. This is the time my wife, I'm still alive. And here, where we don't see any sign of life, there absolutely is the second rove of the Avad Zichro, had he remained alive, he would have contacted his wife. And here he says exactly what I told you earlier, that when it comes to having the two Sveikot at once, he says, that's exactly what happens in modern times. Because communication is instant. There's the mail, there's the telegram, uh, the yet in the newspaper, and if he could have done all this and he didn't, it is a sign that the minute she knows he's dead, he's missing, automatically in that moment you have Tredu Bay, the majority who are on a boat in such conditions are dead. Allah had come of a comma when the guy was asleep. The majority who survived would have contacted their wives immediately. There was a crash, there's heartache, there's worry. Tredu Bay, and it's instantaneous, it's two cut at once. And here too, he brings down the story about Africa, the exact same story about the Agunat from London going to Cape Town, and he says, there too I was made kill, and in this question under discussion, I'm absolutely prepared to be made kill. And he says, if if you can get a baitin of three Talmudi Chachamim, and he doesn't require now Gedoli Yisrael, but just three Talmud Chachamim in America who will accept my tshuva, then take each woman and be mother each woman individually Now I just want to come in. Yoshiva Beit Shal Shlosha Vayatiru Lachol Achat Bifnei Atzma. 
What does he mean by that? What does he mean b'fnayatzma? You see, and here you have the Rackman syndrome. What's happened in America today is exactly what Rabbi Yitzchak is worried about. If you're going to take uh, seven, eight women, bring them in together, and be mutter them all at once, the word will go out that there's a wholesale approach to be mater aguna. It has to be psychological. Each woman has to be spoken to individually. Each woman has to feel that her case is unique and distinct. It's not a wholesale approach. It happens that because all these women were caught up in the same boat, we have a way, and I mean in the same boat, figuratively and literally. Because all these women are caught up in the same boat, so we have a way to be matir. But do it on an individual basis. This is the tragedy with Rabbi Rachman. You come along with Kedushay Taut, Hafkat Kedushin. It could be that there's a case in a thousand where you can apply those principles, particularly Kedushay Taut. But to leave an impression that this is a wholesale solution, that everybody is eligible, no one has a problem, step right up and we'll find a way to solve your condition problem, then you've undermined all the sanctity of Yiddishkeit. And this is exactly what happened in America. What's happening is very frightening. To me, it's unbelievable. I told you, the case I have in Woodmere, the girl's marriage was annulled by Rabbi Rackman. And this is it, you have no idea, because they're in the middle of negotiations. The boy will absolutely give a get. All he wants is a joint property settlement. And the boy is wrong. It's terrible. He committed adultery. He lived like Clinton. It's a terrible situation. Not justifying the boy. But you have to reach uh, the young man, the man, whatever he is. He's a father of three children already. But you have to reach a joint property settlement. You just can't walk away from marriage. You got married. It's joint property. It's three children. You have to reach a settlement. But the girl, her attitude, her parents, Rabbi Rackman, Honey Rackman, it's frightening. And then once the girl thinks her marriage is annulled, this is an Ashitish with three children who already has a boyfriend. Some Balchiva, I understand with a beard, he's from, he's this. Rabbi Rackman said her marriage is annulled, that's it. And the, and the attitude, you see, of, of the average lay person, and that's the difference. To me, I always say smicha gives a person added responsibility. A lay person doesn't look into it, is not knowledgeable, takes the attitude, well, Rakefet is Machmir, this one is Machmir, Willik is Machmir, Shechter is Machmir, you know, you go right down the line. Rabbi Rachman is a lenient rabbi, but he wouldn't go against the halacha. If Rabbi Rachman says what he says, there has to be room for hakel. And this is exactly what Rabbi Zalchanan is bavoning us, is forewarning us here, is warning us to take, to be careful. Um, Looking for a pen, which here it is. Rabbi Rabbi Fochanan is warning us, and I love those words. He says, Don't turn it into a wholesale heta. And this is the chuva he wrote. We even have the exact date on Erev Shabbos Kaidish, Tatsain Kislev. 1891 from Kovna. So it's one of the last shivr he wrote dealing with Aguna. And once again, it becomes a basic shiver, a basic heta, a basic way to be matir. The Aguna, the Bithrochan inspector, Trey Rubey, and in the 20th century, 
thousands upon thousands of tshuvat go back to Rabbi Yitzchok Hanan Spekta. And now let me come to the highlight of today's shir. We come into a different world. The world of Israel. The world of the state of Israel. I want to touch upon the chief rabbinate. I, I, I'm, I'm limited just by time because I'm touching upon a very interesting topic. We have never had a formal rabbinate since the Sanhedrin, basically. When we speak in terms of Gedolei uh, Yisrael, these were Gedolei Yisrael who by virtue of their greatness were accepted by all the people. You take Rabbeinu Geshem. You take uh, Rashi, the Balei Tosfot, the Rambam. And even in the Varabar Ratzat where we had in Poland, Lithuania, White Russia, Volhynia, Great Poland, Little Poland, we had a certain degree of authority but Rabbanim basically were not elected. They were selected after they achieved a certain preeminence. In the Varabarat said it may be the only exception because there, there was a more formal rabbinate than we had before or had afterwards. For instance, in order to publish a sefer, you needed their haskama. It's not like today where every rabbi, every young scholar can publish a sefer, there was a certain hierarchy which did, did exist at the time of the Var Abba Aratzat. But nevertheless, essentially and basically speaking, the Vilnagon was never elected. Even with the Hasidic world, I've said more than once, I don't know if I've ever said it to you, but the Hasidic world presents a tremendous problem. Just because the father was a great rebbe, what makes the kid into a rebbe? And you know, you, you, you take, for example, the Belzer Rebbe. When Rabbara Le Rokach, Rabbara Le Belzer died in 1957, no one was left. His whole family had been wiped out by Hitler. But Rabbara Le, those of you that know the story, escaped from Hungary, from Budapest, with his younger brother, the Bulgar Rav, Reb Mordechai. And Reb Mordechai was much younger than the Rebbe, came to Israel, his family was wiped out by Hitler. And by the way, the Belzer Rebbeim and everything that went on, this, there's so much literature written on this because did they have a right to escape? They left the Hasidim behind. The Belzer Rebbe gave a famous talk that uh, nothing, no harm would befall Hungarian Jews. We all know what happened. So there's a tremendous literature. Those of you that are interested, I can recommend Svarim. So much has been written on this topic. But the facts are that in 1944, they saved the Belzer Rebbe with his younger brother of Mordechai. Everyone remained behind, was basically wiped out, including a Hasid who gave his life for the Rebbe. And that too, as, Rebbe, as my Rebbe said, and I know it from my own research, there's no hetero in the world for a Hasid to give his life for the Rebbe. But a Hasid sat in the Rebbe's chair because the Gestapo checked on the Rebbe every hour in the Budapest ghetto because they knew very well that Kolzman, the Rebbe, is there. There won't be any rebellion. Everything will be quiet on the streets. The little people won't move if the Rebbe doesn't move. And every hour they came in to check that the Rebbe's there. And this Hasid sat in the Rebbe's place with his talus over his head, emulated the Rebbe's voice, and it wasn't until about 24 hours later that the Gestapo realized the Rebbe had fled and by that time they couldn't catch up with him it was a very involved plan because they had to bribe people it wasn't a simple plan uh, uh, you understand it was Nazi occupied Hungarian occupied the horse army how do you get a, a jeep out with a Rebbe in it but there was a whole plan behind it you can read about it so uh, when the Belzer died 
There was no one left. So you'll say to me, what about his younger brother? Ehud asked me, what about the younger brother? The younger brother, Takari, married in Israel, had a boy and a girl. The girl was born in 1947. The boy was born in 1948. And the younger brother of the Belzer Rebbe, I believe he was in his 40s at the time, or early 50s, died about 1950. Uh, you have to remember, someone who went through the Holocaust, I saw with my own Rebbeim, the Shanghai crowd, many of them died young. Many of them died young. And the explanation is they live with a terrible tension for so many years. It takes a toll. A person that lives under tension cannot pays a price. They know two ways about it. So um, they took the boy born in 48, brought him to Yerushalayim. He was the Yunukah. You know what the Yunukta they call it in Hasidus. It means the young kid. A young kid who's been raised to be the Rebbe. The elder Hasidim raised him. When he turned 18, they made a shidduch for him. He married the Vishnitzer Rebbe's daughter in 1966. And that was a famous wedding in B'nai Brak. was the largest wedding Israel had ever realized or seen until that time. It was like a rebirth, 1966. Bells is going to continue. As a matter of fact, they introduced the niggin written explicitly for that wedding that you all sing the niggin until today. Simmin Tavu, Mazel Tavu, Mazel Tavu, Simmin Tav, Simmin Tav, recognize the niggin. Uh, pardon my voice, if I was a woman, there'd be no Easter of Kalisha. That was introduced at the wedding of the Yuknukta with the daughter of the Vishnu Rebbe. And this Rebbe at the wedding, Hasidim who was 70 and 80 years of age, men who were Bekim and Shas and Paiskim, Gedola Yisrael, Rabbanim Dayanim, Avat of Dinim, these Belza stood in front of this 18-year-old kid and drank L'chaim and when the Rebbe answered L'chaim at that moment he was Rebbe and the rest is history so you have to ask a simple question just because his uncle was Rabarela Belza what makes this kid a Rebbe? and here too there's one simple answer and I've said it many times you're right the question is an overwhelming question but there's a simple answer democracy no one forces a chassid to go to a rebbe. And if a chassid feels the rebbe is not worthy of his adoration, if he's an intelligent chassid, he'll go elsewhere. And Maisim Bechal Yom in America, that Satma became Lubavitch, Lubavitch became Satma, Maisim Bechal Yom, when the Kutzka died, Rebbe Menachem Mendel of Kutzka, the chassidim split in three. Some went with his son, others felt the son wasn't on the proper level, they went with the Sachchava, that's how Sachchav begins the Bornstein dynasty. Others went with the Ger, with Ger, Alta, he was a Rosh Hashiva, Rabbi Yitzchak Meir. That's the way Ger begins, which today is probably the most dynamic Hasidus in the world to a certain degree. At least it has a Rebbe and it has a very large following. So you see in Hasidus, you... You come now to Palestine. Pal it's a very fascinating story. Palestine was under the, the British conquered Palestine from the Turks, 1917. All of you are aware of that. General Allenby. Under the Turks, all marriage, divorce, personal status was in the hands of the Chachambashi. Chachambashi means chief rabbi in Turkish. 
the yeshiv is starting to expand. And one rabbi can't do it all. The Chacham Bashi was Rabbi Yaakov Meir. So in the early 20s, 1921 to be exact, a conference was called in the old city of Jerusalem. That conference was sponsored by what today you know as the Jewish Agency. Then it was Knesset Yisrael. It was the body that governed the Jews that were living in the Yishuv that represented them, Klapechutz. The What today is called the Haredit had nothing to do with this body. Refused to join because it was a Zionist body. They met. They met with government officials, British officials, with lawyers and judges. Many of them were Orthodox Jews. And they came up with a formal code, a formal legislation, a chief rabbinate in the state of Israel. And they needed it because the government needed an official body. And now you had a chief rabbinate and you had a formal rabbinate. And that chief rabbinate continues until today. Now, immediately there's a very big problem built in with the chief rabbinate. It is the first time we know of in modern times or in hundreds of years, perhaps thousands of years, that rabbis are elected. And this means you are formally electing a chief rabbinate. All of you know that this is rife with politics until today uh, and more than ever there is so much involved with the chief rabbinate, so much politics, so many deals so much has been worked out to enhance the dignity of the chief rabbinate. And nevertheless, they're elected, there's electioneering, there are campaigns, and you could do an entire history of Machloket and infighting Chil Hashem about cases of the chief rabbinate in Israel. To give you a simple example, Tel Aviv right now is without an Ashkenazic chief rabbi. The fighting that's gone on over electing an Ashkenazic chief rabbi to Tel Aviv can be a bestseller, a video. It, it's unbelievable. And that's only one example. Tel Aviv right now actually has no chief rabbi whatsoever. Not an Ashkenazic chief rabbi. Rabbi Lau became chief rabbi of the state of Israel. And Rabbi David Halevi died, a, a great man, died about a year and a half ago. And Tel Aviv has no chief rabbi. You're talking about the biggest Jewish city in the world. No chief rabbi. Not Ashkenazi, not Svadi. So you're dealing with a problem here. And I don't want to spell it out. I think you're all clever enough and intelligent enough to understand. You can elect someone, chief rabbi, who is a politician, who's, who has savoir-faire, but who's not a great Talmud Chacham. And this is a problem. And it's a problem that the Rav alluded to. I have it in my book. It's a problem. It remains a problem. It is a problem. It will be a problem. Nevertheless, in an organized system where you have to and her over four million Jews living in the state of Israel, and where Chuppah V'Kedushin and personal status, as far as Chuppah V'Kedushin goes, is the sole jurisdiction of the chief rabbinate, you must have an organized, franchised rabbinate. There are no two ways about it. You cannot leave it to hit or miss. And what's amazing is that with all these problems, among the chief rabbis have been Gedolei Gaone Yisrael. The first chief rabbis, of course, were Rabbi Yaakov Meir, Rav Avram Yitzhak Cohen Cook. No one has to add a comment on Rav Avram Yitzhak Cohen Cook. What's amazing is when he died, for the first time now, there was a bitter fight who would be chief rabbi. And most of the Rabbi Cook people 
wanted his Talmud Muvak, Rabbi Yaakov Moshe Chalap, to succeed him. A very interesting story. All of you know the name Rabbi Chalap. There's a Rechov Chalap in Yerushalayim. And this is the grandfather of Rabbi Zvulun Chalap. The man who is, if I'm not mistaken, he's Dean, what is he called? Director of Reeds or Dean of Reeds, which is the proper title. You can correct me if you wish, Avi. No one knows, but he's the boss of Reeds, right or wrong. We'll call him the boss. I think he's Dean today. For many years he was called Director. Rabbi Zvulun Chalap. Um, his grandfather, many people wanted. But you see, there was a Mizrahi element at that time. You wouldn't have this today. This is what Maimad, one of the things that chokes Maimad, there was a Mizrahi element at that time that wanted a chief rabbi with broad secular knowledge. They don't want someone that could be from the Eidah Haredit and happen to be a Zionist, and that's what makes them different. They want someone who is a Gadol B'Torah, a Zionist, and in addition, broad knowledge. And what's amazing is the second chief rabbi, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog. Rabbi Herzog, the story of his life is overwhelming. His father, Rabbi Yol Herzog, Rabbi Yol Halevi, was the rav of the Kehillah Charedit in Paris. In Paris, there always was a Frum community. At that time, it was few and far between. But there always was a firm community of Ashkenazim, although at that time most of Paris was totally assimilated and reformed. The Svadim were not yet what they were today. Svadim weren't even in Paris more or less because they went to Tunisia, Algeria, Morocco. The Svadim in France today are former French citizens from the protectorates who came to Paris. And there was a little community which always was from Rabbi Yoel Halevi Herzog was their rabbi. Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac grew up in Paris, later studied in London, married a girl from London whose father was the Abbatement of London, Rabbi David Hillman's daughter, and their fathers, his father and his father, were both East Europeans who emigrated to the Western world for Panassa to become Rabbanim. What's amazing about Rabbi Herzog, he was autodidactic. He never studied in a yeshiva. And the man was a goinim, sheba goinim. They say no one in the world had his bikini. They had an absolute photographic memory, all of Shas, Munach, Lafonov, Kakufsa, like it was in a shoebox in front of him. Interestingly enough, he corresponded anonymously with the Ridbaz of, Tzlutz, of Slutsk. And the Ridbaz knew that in Paris there's a young person growing up who was a gadol sheba gadolim. When the Ridbaz visited Paris, raising money to cover the cost of printing his Yidushami. You know what I'm talking about? Rabbi Yaakov ben David Zervalovsky, who, who wrote a famous commentary in Yidushami, Your Yidushami, the seven-volume edition that we use today, the Ridbaz edition. And he wrote a commentary like Rashi and like Tosfat. Look at it, you'll see what I'm talking about. So when the Ridbaz visited Paris, he dealt with the Rothschilds, raised money, it was a fortune of money, he met the anonymous young man for the first time, and he gave him smicha. And Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Alevi Herzog always considered himself a Talmud of the Ridbaz, although he never studied with him formally, but they corresponded. Now, Rabbi Herzog goes on to become the chief rabbi of Ireland, Dublin. On the way to Dublin, he gets a DHL, a Doctor of Hebrew, a Doctor of Hebrew Literature at the University of London, I believe, doing a doctorate in marine biology. He did a doctorate on Tchelet. Did a doctorate in Tchelet, 
applying marine biology, trying to establish what Tchelet is, a very fascinating piece of work which has become very timely due to the interest today in rediscovering Tchelet. And Rav Herzog then needs a position and he goes on to Dublin. Dublin, it might sound very august, chief rabbi of Allen, but it was a very small position and he was very lonely there. And I know this from a day re. I'm telling you something that you may not be able to get anywhere else. In 1935, I believe it was Rav, Rav, later to be Rav Maimon, then Rav Fishman, later to be the first Sahad that taught the Medina Chisrael, a great Mizrahi leader, Rav Maimon visits Dublin. And after Shabbos, had to be about 1935, after Shabbos, Rav Maimon told the story. I heard it from people who heard it from Rav Maimon. Rav Maimon was the first Yad, Yad Rav, there's uh, a Yad Rav Cook today, isn't there? Rav, isn't there Mossad, what they call it, Mossad Rav Cook? He was the founder. Rav Maimon was the founder of that. He was the first Sahad Datot. He visits Dublin, he's raising funds from Mizrahi, and he spends the Shabbos with the Herzogs. And after Shabbos, the Rebetzin says to Rav Herzog, who is not the outgoing personality, Rebetzin Herzog was my yet new, she built Ezrat Nashim. There's a big hospital here that she built. It's called Herzog Hospital today for the chronically ill, for the mentally ill. So uh, uh, she says to her husband in Yiddish, now talk with Rav Maimon. You, you, you who the late Maimon, you had something to tell him. Finally, Rav Herzog gets the words out and he says that he's so unhappy, he has no one to talk with, he's spiritually lonely, he'll do anything for position in Palestine, even to be a shamas and a shubal. Keep him in mind. And two years later, Rabbi Maimon supported Rav Chalap. And two years later, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog was offered to become Ashkenazic chief rabbi of the state of Israel. And I can tell you something else in parentheses that only Aaron Rakefet knows through his research, and I haven't published it because no one has published on this era. I feel very bad. No one has gone beyond my work on rebel. There are reasons why. I can't deal with it now. But no one has gone. You should know, when Rabbi Revel died, Rabbi Herzog would have been accepted universally, pe'echad, unanimously, as the new president and Rosh Yeshiva of Yeshiva and Yeshiva College. The whole machloket over Rabbi Young and Rabbi Soloveitchik, and finally in 1943 they bring in Dr. Belkin, that whole machloket would have never taken place. Rabbi Herzog would have been elected and selected unanimously. And he... He was in America visiting and war already broke out. It was 1941 and he insisted on going back to Palestine. I have it in my book on the Silver Era. This I do have what I'm telling you now. He insisted on going back. He could not desert the land of Israel. Now he was a giant. The man became chief rabbi at the most trying time. Look at his pictures. 1938-39, he's young. He has a black beard Look what he looks like by 1950. He aged 30 years in 10 years. The Holocaust, the state of Israel, the problems, what the man lived through. Now let me say something else as well. I'm giving you a background here, but it's very, very important. Stuart, what's your first name? Gershon, Gershon. Gershon, I want to tell you, your grandfather was Asuka? Your great uncle. And your father is David, and who's Moshe? Moshe is my uncle. Your uncle. 
My wife knows your family. They live that part of the family. They lived in the Kingsbridge. They died in Youngsville of Kingsbridge. First cousins. Okay. So when I mentioned your name, and I told her what you told me about, she right away responded and told me she knows the family. So that's your uncle, great uncle, uncle, first cousins. Got it. So she knows part of the family. Back here. I want to say something else to you, and this is very crucial and very important. The state of Israel, you understand, it happened to us. It fell upon us. There was no time to plan for it. Let me say a few words about my work on the Rav. My work on the Rav, I began researching, even though I didn't realize it, in 1951. The day I entered Yeshiva University, I already knew about the Rav. Was a student, remained a student. Tapes, notes, lectures, classroom. 1987, I give three lectures on the Rebbe as a master storyteller. The boys plead with me to write it up. I start writing. I finish ten years later. Now, Yichas charts, pictures. When I go home tonight, what do you think I'll be doing? I'm working on a name index, a place index. Organized, planned. Time, no rush. It'll come out when it's finished. The publisher, six thousand miles away, no one's rushing us. We had time to think. La Havdil, the Holocaust hit the Jews. Every minute you were asleep, you were not doing something to save Jewish life. Every moment of every day. You had to realize thousands of Jews are being killed. The Holocaust ends. Tens of thousands of Jewish kids are in monasteries. How do you get them out? Read the Silver again. I describe Rabbi Herzog going to the monasteries. I told you, saying Shema Yisrael, and the Catholic Church in Machshmam B'Zichram. They hate us. They hate Judaism. They have to hate us because the fact that we're here refutes and debunks their whole theology. The Catholic Church agreed, "Bal kacham." If a kid shows that he knows the Shema Yisrael, it's a sign he's Jewish. Those kids they let out. You know how many kids? I told you. You know how many poles came out of the woodworks now that know they're Jews and still go to church every Sunday morning. I've heard so I had such responsibility. And then, while all this was happening, there's the state of Israel, the fighting, the killing, the murder, the blowing up of the King David Hotel, the Ogun, Eitzel, Haganah, the state, the British are leaving. There was no time to think, no time to plan. And you have to f- realize these Gedolei Israel had to deal with problems with absolute no peace of mind. Not like I described to you, writing a book and having no time pressure and taking your time and polishing and repolishing and redoing and indices and pictures and labeling and dividing. Lahatil, no time. Everything fell on top of them, and through it all, Rav Herzog was the giant of giants. Now, let me say something else too. Because of all this, he never could prepare his writings for publication. He left a fortune of manuscripts. Many of these manuscripts were unfinished symphonies. We don't know 
what the outcome was, what he ultimately said, we'll never know. He didn't publish it. After his death, a great deal has been published. What I'm quoting from now are the most basic works that were published, the first works. And these were basically for manuscripts that more or less, more or less were finished. Now what I'm quoting from now is the Heichal Yitzchak. Heichal Yitzchak, Rabbi Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog, I'm quoting from Ebenezer, Chelek Bet, the second time he did Ebenezer, there are two volumes in Ebenezer, one volume on Orachayim, I'm quoting Siman Aleph. Now I have to tell you, when his son, Chaim Herzog, was president of the state of Israel, he founded an organization, money was raised, and they published about ten little volumes of Kitvayad of Rav Herzog, going way beyond the original three volumes of the Heichal Yitzchak. But nevertheless, the trivet that are the most finished and that are the easiest to quote, at least we can understand which way he was going, are the trivet in the Heichal Yitzchak. And I want to take one very famous trivet that has so much contemporary significance as Zionists, as Torah Jews, so much of Jewish history. And that, of course, is Simon Aleph in Chilik Bet. And what we're dealing with here is... The Chiva is very interesting because the page is divided in half. On top of the page is what remains of uh, Rav Herzog's Chiva. At the bottom of the page is a long description written by one of the survivors of what happened in Kfar Etzion. And what happened is very simple. We always had a Jewish presence in the Gush. There were kibbutzim there. It was a large Jewish presence. Why did the Zionist movement deem it so important to have a large Jewish presence in the Gush? Because everyone understands you cannot defend Yerushalayim unless the surrounding areas are in Jewish hands. So the Gush became the great defense against Hebron. And it was very important to have Jewish settlement there. During the War of Independence, beginning already with 47, 48, the Gush is cut off. And all of you understand why, because the Arabs control Beit Lechem, Beit Shala. Once you control Beit Lechem, Beit Shala, you can cut off the roads leading out to Gush. This is the story of the Lamed Hay, the famous 35 boys who were out on a convoy bringing food, supplies, and ammunition to the Gush. It's a classic story. Among them was the first yeshiva college graduate, the first YU graduate to fall in the War of Liberation, Moshe Perlman, Hashem Yikom Damo, remember the name, Moshe Perlman. And you will remember the story, beyond Beit Lechem, they met an old Arab man. And they should have killed him. And instead of killing him, 
They said he's an old man. They made him promise not to tell where they're going, not to squeal on them, and they let the guy go. And he went and told the Arabs that there's a Jewish convoy making their way towards the Gush. And of course, the Arab marauders uh, fell on the convoy that night and killed every last person. That's the story of the Lamed Hay, and it's a very uh, tragic story how Hamarachim al Hachagzari, the Sofa that Achzari person will kill those that had Rachamim on him, as Chazal say. And uh, finally, the good. I, 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 well, a few survived. 35 were killed. 35 were killed. That, that much I can tell you. Lamed Hay. Now, the Gush, it could be, there had to be survivors to tell the story. Now, the Gush, shortly thereafter, the Gush is totally encircled. And the Arabs, literally, when they conquered them, massacred them, only two people, only two men survived. And the story was very tragic. Two individuals, two Bahurim, and survived, and one woman who was working communication system. And these two individuals survived with miracles because the Arabs slaughtered everyone, the legionnaires, the Jordan people, the, the Arabs, King Hussein's people, whatever we're mourning today, if we're mourning, and everyone was killed except Habakurak Sharit, which today we would use the word Habakura may... Uh, 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 who's involved with uh, Kesher, with communications, uh, and uh, Plugata Kesher, perhaps we'd use the word Machleketa Kesher, but here they use the word Habahura. What was the word I used? Habahura. One second, where would I see it? One second. Vabahura Haksharit, that's the word they used in Hebrew at that time. Interesting. Two fellows survived by miracles and this woman. After they finished killing them all, they survived, they didn't kill them, they took them captivity to Jordan and afterwards they were reunited months later with, with, with the state of Israel. Now, here you had a tremendous problem. What do you do with the widows? What do you do with all the women? Most of these people were married. We spoke about it last year in a different context altogether. When they realized how tenuous their position was in the Gush, all the women and children were moved to Yerushalayim. You have to remember, when all is said and done, men do the fighting. Also, it's more important to keep women alive than men. For a very simple reason. You understand why? Women have children. A man can impregnate ten women. But you must have women to be able to have children. There's no tomorrow if we don't have women. Ultimately, if we ever had our backs against the wall, we could remove the chaim of Rabbeinu Geshem, and one man could have ten wives, simply to give us more children. So they removed the women and children to Yerushalayim, and the men remained there alone. And here the men are slaughtered, bodies are not recovered. By the time we did recover the bodies, many, many, it's, 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 it's perhaps almost two years later, three years later, that who can identify the bodies, what do you do? How do you permit these women to remarry? Now, at that time, the Israeli army was in formation. In the Israeli army was a young person by the name of Shlomo Gorenchik. 
You know him by what name, Afi? Shlomo Gorin. Exactly. Shlomo Gorin was a Hebron yeshiva boy, was an Ilui, an Ilui Atsum. Came in Aliyah from Poland, and in Hebron in the 1930s, he was one of the biggest stars. There was Rabbi Tzavul Jolti, who later becomes the chief rabbi of Jerusalem, and there was Rabbi Shlomo Gorenchik, one of the others who was a big star, but younger is Rabbi Yitzchak Kulitz, who's the chief rabbi of Jerusalem today, but unfortunately is not well. He's the Ashkenazic chief rabbi, and he suffered a serious had some serious brain surgery about two years ago. He basically is not able to function totally. Uh, but also, these were the stars. Notice in those days in Hebron, Yeshivat Hebron, right in Goula, right next to Meir Sharim, Rechov Yeshiva, the building still stands, and, it's a, and it is a Yeshiva today. Hebron has had many split trees. Excuse me, it's split many times along the way. There's a Yeshiva in the building, Notice that, as Rabbi Goron once put it, when I studied in Hebron, everyone was a Mizrahiite. The Agudic Israel people used to meet clandestinely in secret. Today in Hebron, everyone's an Agudist, and if there are any Mizrahiites left, they're the ones that have to meet secretly. And it's a good comment. So Rav Goron was in the army. He was involved in the capture of Yerushalayim. He fought in the Yerushalayim a, a religious brigade. I even knew his commander, the man who commanded Rabbi Goron in the brigade, died only within the last year, Avram Malamed. And, and Goron fought. He was a sharpshooter. And then when the army was formed, Ben-Gurion asked him to take over and forge a rabbinate in the army. And he was a colonel at the time, and he forged, of course, what goes on to become the ha, the the rabbanut in the rabbanut hatzvayit in the Israeli army. Now, Rav Herzog asked him, and uh, he asked Rav Herzog. They both dealt with this problem: What do you do for these wives? Interestingly enough, when you see the way the tshuva begins, they go into the whole question of chayalei, beit david, hayu, kotvim, getim, lenishayim, everything I spoke about last year that it could be advisable from this point on, whenever someone comes into the Israeli army, he has the right to get to his wife. It's based upon the Gemara in Shabbos, the Gemara in Ketuvah, you're all familiar with it. And it could be, we have to do that. It's not an easy halachic solution for one very simple reason, that the state of Israel, unlike any other wars that we fought, that we know about, here, the battle line is next to the home, so that soldiers are constantly going and coming and going and coming, and each time a soldier comes, someone has relations with his wife, he's mavatel, the kavana that he put into the get. Uh, it's it, If when you give a get, it's mavatel the get already that you gave, your rima kadasha, alachas kama when you haven't given a get yet, it's a tremendous halachic problem. But that's not only, that's only one part of the problem. It could be that problem we can overcome. Halachically, there's another problem here, a very simple problem, a, a problem of, of, of morale. How would soldiers feel if they know they're going to war and they divorce their wives? How do you feel you've left the house and you've given a wife a get? It's a tremendous problem of morale. So over the years, as I explained last year, and I'm not going to it now, we solved the problem, but we solved it without the writing of a get. We solved it on different levels. Nevertheless... Rav Herzog and Rav Goren seem to agree that at that point, that at that point in time, they should have uh, 
all the soldiers fighting Gittin to avoid these problems. However, what do you do with the Gush Etzion people? Here already there was no time to write Gittin, there was no time to think, no time to plan. This is under attack, they're surrounded, they're cut off from Jerusalem. And here Rav Herzog goes the high road, quoting Rav Yitzchel He speaks about how Posei Kamufak Hagon Mikavna, who developed the whole concept of Trey Rubei. And he says, here we certainly have Trey Rubei, the overwhelming majority of those that were in Kvaretzion when the Arab legionnaires came in, were massacred, were killed. All that survives are these two men and the woman in charge of communications. Number two, Rebelezimir Verdun. You have the second suffix. And as I've been saying all along today, the minute the woman is told, both they cut apply at once. Because had he survived, he could have and should have and would have contacted his wife. And he says in relation to Reb Lezimer Verdun, even though many of the Rishonim dismissed him, but Rav Herzog too calls the Khatam Sofa. And he says, Bismanenu, this is a tremendous role. Today we have such instant communication, 1948, 1949. He says, Allah had come of if the people would have survived, the rove is overwhelming. There's so many ways to contact. And if the Khatam Sof already said, when this chiva is being written. And um, he says, with all that I have seen, with all that you have told me, with all that you have explained to me, writes to have gone, with all that you investigated, I have reached the conclusion, he says, there's no doubt about it. We can be mati vizagunit to remarry immediately. However, I make one condition, and this is very interesting. I want you, Rabbi Shlomo Goring, refers to him by name. He refers to him as Hagrashk. Hagon Rabbi Shlomo Goring Shlita has to show my chiva, my responsum to the great Rabbonim of the generation, the great poskim of the generation. Who does he list out? He lists out the Rishon Letzion. Who is Rishon Letzion then? Can anyone tell me? Who was the second Sephardic chief rabbi of the state of Israel? No? What do you say? Who lives in Bayat Vagan? Rehov Uziel. No? Harav Meir Chai Uziel. Mishpatay Uziel. A giant of Torah. So, Rav Herzog wants him to see it. Then he wants a going with Tzvi Pesach Frank. I'm based in Yerushalayim. You've heard the name. Who was Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank? He was the he was the Avbeitin of Yerushalayim for for, for 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 decades upon decades. It was a going idea. This is from the Frank family from Kovna, and and this is a giant of Torah. You talk about Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank, the Hard Tzvi. So many from remained from him. A legendary figure. That's the second person. Hagon Rav Shlomo David Kahana. Who is Rav Shlomo David Kahana? He was the Avbeitnan of Warsaw, who settled in the old city, was saved at the last minute in 48, taken out of the old city. 
he was a great posek in Dini Ishut. He was matir, so many agunit following the Holocaust. He wants Reb Shlomo, he wants Reb, Reb, Reb David Kahana from the old city to see it. And Hagoyen Reb Mishulam Roat, Av Burton of Chenowitz, he was a member of the chief rabbinate. This was a great Hungarian posek, Reb Mishulam Roat. This was a giant of giants, also great Zionist, saved from the Holocaust. Only because he was a Zionist. You know the story of Mishalim Roth? He was a giant. He was elected to the biggest positions in Hungary, but he was a Mizrahiite. So the Hasidim wouldn't have him. The only city that would take him was Chernowitz, because Chernowitz was already Hasidish and many Maskilim there. It was a mixed city. So he was the only candidate, Reb Mishalim Roth, that both the Hasidim and the Maskilim could agree upon. On one hand, he was a giant of Torah, Hasidic, a Jew. On the other hand, he was a Mizrahiite. He was enlightened. And because of that, he was saved. Because the other cities that he was, could have been rabbi, had he not been at Sioni, were totally wiped out by Hitler. Chernowitz, he was able to run away yet, is one of the last cities to be conquered. And he says, I want you to show my countries to these Gedoli Israel." And give me their comments as quickly as possible. Listen to what he writes. The Yavakeshamatsiya, that means Rav Goran, Sha'et Kuntreseim Hachashuvim. And by the way, there's a word missing here. When you read the Chiv, it reads, Yishhuli Achazmandiyasta. It means they should leave it, not get to it. No, it has to be Lo Yishhuli Achazman. Don't put it aside. <clears throat> you know, you get mailed, you get this, you get that, you put it aside, you don't attend to it. The Yizdanzulahodia, and they should answer you immediately. This is Bikuach Nefesh. If two out of three of the names I mention are masking with the Heta, I Am Matir one hundred percent from Makam Yerere Nenu Bamatar Atalakadosha Vizakenu Laharamet Karen Yisrael the Karen Atar Bemehera Tidan Amen Viamen Noum Yitzchak Isaac Halevi Herzog Harav Harashili Yisrael. So here you have a classic example of Rav Herzog of what we're talking about of the pressures of the tension of the tragedy of the Gush Etzion what happened there. Now I had the skut that I taught children from the second marriages of many of these women. You understand? Most of all remarried. There's a certain feeling in Israel, you know, when someone falls in battle, friends of the person who died, it's amazing, marry the widow. There's a certain feeling. This is in the Mechaz Arab circles, the the Zionist circles, the, the circles that are on the front line. I know what happened in 1982, and, 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 and as far as I know, all the women are remarried, Baruch Hashem, to friends, friends of their, of their, uh, of their first husbands. And I know in Michalar, I taught women who were remarried a second time to friends of their first husbands who fell in battle. And this is Rav Herzog. But you see what's amazing here is the attitude, the relationship. This is a young Rav Shlomo Gorin, just starting his way up the military ramp in it, just starting to forge it, just starting to organize it. And here's Rav Gorin, Rav Herzog, turning to him, dealing with him, talking with him, the Gadol Shebegedailim, agreeing with him, charting a course, Eichla Hatir, most fascinating, 
who Rav Herzog says to turn to. I'll make one other comment as well, that you can see that the world was not as politically split as today. Of course, you see the Rishon Letzion, of course, was a Zionist, formal rabbinate, chief rabbinate. You talk about Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank, Rav Tzvi Pesach Frank was not a formal Zionist. He already was the Rav of Yerushalayim, wasn't the, wasn't the card-carrying Mizrahi member. Nevertheless, he was revered by everybody. Rav Shlomo David Kahana was not a card-carrying member. This was a Gadol Sheba Gadolim, the Vashira Av Beitin. All right, Rav Mishilam Roth was a Zionist, a Zionist already from youth. But take a look how the world was not as fragmented, as split as it is today. Today I can't conceive of a chief rabbi writing a tshuva and he would make the tshuva dependent upon the baitan of the Eidachareidit, the baitan of Agudat Yisrael, the baitan of Marzike Hadat of Bells, Halavai, which should be zeichet to it. But today the split is much greater and much more grievous. Here you see there was much more cooperation. And I can prove that a thousand ways over. I may even deal with that in the Machshavra on a Monday morning. I have to see the way you react tomorrow. I'll explain myself in a minute. Okay. So, gentlemen, what we've done today, we finished the Bitzlochan Inspector. We finished out a world. Uh, I threw out to you for your, uh, just to challenge you, those of you looking for a doctorate, what a fascinating topic. America in the Chivat of East European rabbis, and you have to limit yourself to the second half, or at the turn of the century. It could be before, or a little bit after, but very fascinating. How is America reflected? What are the questions that are asked? But Rabbi Tzolchanan, the Treirube, is now world famous. All over, people are turning to him. How can you solve this problem for us? How can you give us guidelines? Rav Herzog, I went into a whole discourse on his life. It's a very important era. Godlmi Rabban Shemo, what a man, what an individual, what a time, what sacrifice. Uh, his office in Heichal Shlomo exists until today exactly the way it was when he died. And I don't know if why you have protection, how to get you in. I had protection years ago. I used to go in and look at his forum and see what he wrote, what he underlined. I used to even Xerox. It was like the man is still there in the room. You're waiting for him to come back any minute. But what a giant Rav Herzog was. What a person. See, that's one time where electing a formal chief rabbi proved its value in gold. And this is only one. We're going to deal with Rav Herzog next week. We're going to move further with a limited question, then come into the Holocaust. But Rav Herzog was the tel palpiot, as Chazal say, hatel shakol ponimei love. Everyone turned to him. Everyone loved him. It wasn't the, the, the grief, although the split, I have to be honest with you, by the 1950s already, the split begins, but we'll have to talk about that some other time. Now, tomorrow, I'm my Rabbi Salavechik class, Bezrat Hashem Yitbarach, I finish out the Pesach Shia, and I reach Rabbi Salavechik versus my Talmud, Rabbi Yosef Kloisner. It's a fascinating story that reveals a lot about the Rav in the classroom. Afterwards, I want to speak about Israel as viewed through the eyes of uh, the religious Israel, <coughs> as viewed through the eyes of the Israeli press. And it gives you a little bit insight on the impression that religious Jewry lives, leaves on people if you just read the press and even our own problems with what's happening here and 
the development of Torah Judaism on Israeli soil. I begin the class by coming back to Rabbi Kreisworth because Rabbi Kreisworth said one thing that day that I wanted to elaborate on and I'll begin the class by elaborating tomorrow. Now, if I see the boys at Tucker interested in the Israeli scene, then I'll knock off a week and deal with Israeli religious politics and that's a different story. But I have to see that you're interested because it's dumb to talk about what's going on in Israel. If your minds are in Woodmere, Lawrence, Teaneck, Toronto, and Washington Heights, then of course I don't want to bore you. Finally, I have some goodies up if anyone is interested. Number one, Barilan put out their weekly Torah sheet. This is a Torah Umada statement, second to none. If anyone's interested, it's yours. This is an article by the grants by the great grandson of Rabbi uh, Gold, for whom Machon Gold is named, uh, Rabbi Zev Gold, for whom Machon Gold is named. This is an article by his great grandson. It's a brilliant article by a person who has a PhD from Columbia University in comparative literature, and he deals with the machloket of Hillel Hazakin and Shammai Hazakin accepting or not accepting the Gerim in Mesechet Shabbat. He refutes David Hartman's thesis along the way. Brilliant, brilliant article. This is an article by prof- the late Professor Andrei Nahar. Uh, he advertised his name afterwards. This, was, this is a speech he gave right after the Six-Day War. If you want to know what the spirit was like in the Jewish world after the Six-Day War, read this article. It says it all. And this man single-handedly created an entire world of Balei Tshuva, of academicians, brilliant French Jews, who were with Jose Tshuva and Olu Atza. If you have today, Ohel Nechem in Yerushalayim, where if you don't speak French, or you feel out of place, and the shul is mobbed in, 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 in Talbia, and the uh, Katamon, Kiat Shmuel, Rechavya, Ohel Nechem, right next to the president's house, you are a Tanreina Ar. Those of you going into Chinech, here's Midei Chodesh Bechot Shol, the latest issue. It's edited by a student of mine. It's just full-packed full with information, how to teach, what to teach, how to deal with the events of Chodesh Shvat, if you're in the classroom. My dear students, name, are you a regular, a guest? Where do we stand? You're more than welcome. I'll add your name in a second. You're more than welcome. I need students. I'm hungry for students. It is a disgrace that I have more students via tape than in person. But this is the reality of the Y.U. Cola as the year grinds on. I have to write a thank you note for Avi Fina for taking off time from Rabaran, from Yeridea, attending my shia today. I mamish owe a handwritten thank you note. Ad kedekach. This is where we stand. My dear students, until we meet again in health and happiness, das vidanya. Thank you very much.